tone of identity politics is the underlying relationship between all of these complaints. I guess this one just stings a little bit more because it's just directly about sex. Like it's really about the censoring of the female body when it's sexualized and happens to be a young adult. It's not even a child, actually. The the painting is... Yeah, I was wondering about the age of the girl in the Balthus painting. Well, that's ambiguous, and that's part of the point. Exactly, it's part of the point. Ding. God forbid we honestly face the fact that pubescent girls have a sex drive. Sexuality. has got to be the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> Why? When was Lolita written? <laughs> Are we supposed to act like our sexuality finally starts at, like... 25 or 30? Is that the acceptable age? No, when the state oh. says so. When you're old enough to go and die for war, I guess. I don't know. And all I could think about, like, so what's next? Are we going to have to start rating our works, like TV ratings? Like, this is PG-13, this is rated R, and this is rated X, whatever well, that's it is. that's the thing. Are you only allowed to depict a woman as, like, a sexual being after she's, what, like, taken a class with Judith Butler and shaved her head? Like, what are the prereqs? I don't get it. I think George Lopez has a bit about a mom being so uncomfortable about her daughter's sexuality that she postpones having the sex talk until after her daughter's second kid. Funny. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. We're up on HBO. Yeah. yeah. It's like... You yeah. porn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good times. Hello, and welcome to a late episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary and the commentary on the left. We had a bit of a delay. The holidays kind of held us back. But we're back now. We good. We got three segments for you. My name is Pam Nogales, I'm one of your hosts, and Lori Rojas will be joining me first to talk about the Me Too phenomena with two of our members, Carrie Graham from Chicago and Nunzia Faze from the London School of Economics. And the second segment, we'll be discussing the German elections and the crisis that has recently resolved itself with the alliance between the Christian Democrats and the SPD. Stefan Hein recently did an interview with Sasha Stanicic from the Socialistische Alternative, a Trotskyist organization here in Germany. So Stefan will be joining us to talk about the interview as well as German politics today. Last but not least, we'll wrap up with a conversation with Chris Catron, president of the Platypus Affiliated Society, and he'll be talking to us about the first year of the Trump presidency. So we'll take stock and discuss Marxism in the Age of Trump the new title from Platypus Review Publishers, out now for purchase. That's it. It's a full episode, so get a hold of something. Grab on to, grab on to your pussy hats. <laughs> Here we go. So we're going to discuss the Me Too phenomenon. I saw that there was a, a recent manifesto. It's not so recent. It was from the 10th of January. Uh, I guess liberal left, you would call them. It was also signed by Catherine Deneuve. It was the anti-Me Too manifesto. Mm -hmm. And Carrie had shared it on Facebook, so we thought we'd have a chat about it. And one of the things that it brings up, it's being critical of the Me Too movement. And one of the points of contention it brings up is the censorship of provocative artwork 
such as the Balthus painting in the at the Met in New York, that a lot of the subjects are these kind of prepubescent girls. I mean, question mark, it's part of the artwork to kind of keep you on edge as to what age these, these women are. And they're usually posing in somewhat provocative manner, although maybe innocently so. And a lot of people were up in arms as of late now because of this Me Too movement, the question as well. Should anyone even take pleasure in looking at this? Should anyone even consider this art? And so what does it mean then that this moment that we're in makes us question uh, whether or not this is uh, approved by the general public? Uh, I have to say I was very sympathetic to this point, actually. Well, the prudishness element. Mm -hmm. I was as well. You were sympathetic to the critique of the prudishness that it's supporting. And yeah, it was, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it definitely expresses itself with the attempt to censor the Balthus painting at the Met and countless other uh, expressions. These kinds of attacks on the Balthus are not new, but it does have a new uh, driving force behind it around me too. Uh, I think that the real issue, of course, is the element of the whole Me Too movement, what's motivating it uh, right now, which is very much part and parcel, as we can see from the year anniversary of the inauguration, that the women's marches have repeated themselves across several cities in the United States, but also in Europe. This is about Trump. It's anti-Trumpism. The Me Too originates uh, as a anti-Trump and pro-democratic party uh, campaign. But is it more? Is it more than that? I mean, now to the point, I mean, again, the reason why I find this critique, um, why I'm, I sympathize with part of the critique is that it's bringing up a kind of inherent conservatism that is part of this Me Too movement that even falls below the threshold of, you know, a kind of classical liberal position where people are supposed to be free to experience themselves and myriad of ways without censorship and taboo yeah well this is carrie um i think it's really interesting um how much purchase me too has seemed to have in the media this sort of censorship issue that you bring up just to me seems like really in contradiction like even with maybe you know other debates that used to happen within the feminist movement where people sort of like recognize that maybe like, you know, female artists actually had a social interest in not censoring artwork and things like this. And that just kind of seems to be missing from the conversation until this letter arrived, which I think is like timed sort of well for it to be a part of the discussion. I think they waited for Me Too to die down a little bit and for people to start to feel like they do want to question what happened a little more um and i sort of see that breaking down and happening right now a little bit and i think the questioning of me too is very important because i don't really see me too as something that i particularly find empowering as a woman i think that it is sort of this like anti-sexuality thing going on but also like this internalized victim identity that can happen and um i don't know i've been pretty skeptical of it from the beginning and i'm glad that that's sort of surfacing in the public conversation too yeah one forerunner to this i think carrie you would have would agree was uh, the experiences of 
um, the campaigns for Take Back the Night, um, but also <laughs> Slot Walk, uh, which right, had right. a sort of different element, different approach to kind of the same problem of, of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. Uh, but it didn't quite have so much of the, I would say, um, the target of male sexuality so much. The target still in something like, uh, maybe not in Take Back the Night, but in Slot Walk, it still was trying to target and not limit uh, women's own sexuality, but embrace it through the Slot Walks. Right. There was kind of an element of like defending freedom of expression in Slot Walk, I guess. So I was just going to get into like things that I think are missing from Me Too that like point to the conservatism of it or like the sort of narrow ideology that Me Too isn't just women spontaneously rising up and calling out their oppressors or something. I've not seen in this conversation any encouragement for women who've experienced assault or harassment to seek out therapy to overcome their trauma. And I think this actually like indicates a certain pessimism for the possibilities of that. I also think that in some ways, you know, there will always be people who are predatory in the world, there will always be people experiencing horrible things. But there's like a question of how politics can potentially like exploit people's vulnerable experiences for a political end. And so then you have to ask like the why behind the Me Too. And it seems like, you know, the people who are really behind it, Tarana Burke, um, I'm blanking on the new agenda woman, who's like another like social media person that like planned the Me Too hashtag at this time, like they are not just random people, you know, they're very successful within NGOs. They're leading women to come out for a particular end. And I think like the, that end is to like vote for Oprah or whoever is going to be running as Oprah ultimately. And um, I think it's, very cynical, yes, Amy Siskind, yes. The other element of me is like, why is this happening, right? And, sort of what if, and, and perhaps more importantly, why is this happening now? And right. I, I think that there's, there's one question of the limits of Me Too that I would raise is that it's not really at all trying to understand the causes of the sexual mm-hmm. harassment, sexual rape. Like, Carrie, you, you are concerned about, okay, encouraging women to seek out therapy, but what about encouraging other approaches to understanding why men would act in such a way, sort of what are the sources of such behavior? as opposed to just assuming a sort of more totalizing uh, every person with the penis is going to be an aggressor. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, or like the New York Times op-ed said that every man, every masculine sexuality is monstrous. Yeah, or, or which then also produces every feminine sexuality is vulnerable or, you know, uh, having a vagina makes mm-hmm. you a victim, having a penis uh, makes you a predator. Um, that kind of reductive perspective on it. It's, it's one source, I would say, of concern. But another is, right, is like how much of this is actually closely tied to labor, to uh, working conditions. And of course, the element of 
Um, exposing people publicly to social media has been a big character of this, but other forms of, say, going to your union if you had one, or going to HR if you had one, or going to the police, sort of also points to the, the limitations or the abandonment of those um, approaches mm. to dealing with mm-hmm. this problem, and points to the insufficiency of them, of course, as well, but nonetheless creates this discontent. Yeah, I mean, it's got this weird resonance, this echo, rather, this kind of strange echo of, like, southern planter culture and (laughs) the way they thought of women's sexuality. Uh At least the puritanical side does. You know, there used to be a time in America when women in the south were seen as these, like, pure, beautiful creatures who needed to be protected, and... Uh, a lot of black men died as a result of being called rapists. And so there's always an ideology at work, right, that, that's kind of um, moving people towards these accusations. And so, it, it, yeah, it reminds me of why people were lynched. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's kind of disturbing that people that consider themselves to be, I don't know, liberals or on the left in any meaningful sense of the word, which I'm not sure what that means today, think that destroying some man's life is um, justice for women. And the interesting argument I've heard on justice for women is that I've even heard in arguments in bars in Berlin that maybe it's okay that a few men pay for the abuses of that women have suffered for oh yeah i just heard that in a couple of bars in new york i just got i just got back platypus hosted a sex on the left salon and and a bar in new york in the vol de nuit and someone there said the same thing right like well look at history haven't women suffered if you know even if the man is innocent like in the long scheme of things isn't it justice anyway and i think that that gets to the point like sort of real crux of the issue is that like are the socialists interested in some kind of cosmic justice some sort of like moralization of sexuality you know like what would socialists say about sexual liberation like what would be the marxist position on sexual emancipation well you know marx's point like I mean, he was in, I, th- I think he did speak to the socialist demand to abolish the family and the socialist demand to abolish the distinction between the sexes, which has been part of their demand since socialism was conceived uh, with Babeuf's conspiracy of the equals. Um, but Marx's point was that the family and the distinction between the sexes was actually being abolished by industrial production anyways, that men, women, and children are actually already equal in their value in generating surplus labor, um, but that the potential of this to generate new values and new social forms of humanity was not being realized in industrial in the industrial revolution and capitalism. So the socialist demand to abolish the family, right? Marx tried, tr- treated it as self-contradictory and symptomatic of capitalism, but necessary actually to being able to become conscious of that contradiction. What's interesting is like how how have Marxists since then tried to take that up, um, especially like in critical theory. Um, you know, I'm reminded of Adorno, for instance. Adorno would be nice and timely right now. I mean, a lot of our conversations uh, among members in Platypus uh, has been about revisiting sexual taboos in the law today, and 
Right, the question of what sexuality becomes, the kind of contradictions that it faces, even within bourgeois culture, right? We're all bourgeois, right? Meaning we all live in bourgeois society. And the the difficulty in articulating what liberation looks like. Adorno has this phrase about how, you know, in, in his society, in his moment, um, everyone aims to have a healthy sex life uh, and that this is the goal, right? And this is what it means to be like a good bourgeois person. And one could say that today what it means to have a healthy sex life is to uh, to read, um, what's the name of the book? 100 Shades of Grey? 50 Shades uh, of Grey. 50, sorry, there's not 100. <laughs> 50 Shades sequel. of Grey, right? You can write that one, down. No, but the point, like, well, like, of course, at least I never read the books, but I did, I confess, watching Fifty Shades of Grey. But meaning, what I think what term that Adorno would use that applies to Fifty Shades of Grey or Art and Me Too is the desexualization of sexuality, right? Where we're dealing with is a sexual morality that's actually now having to, if there were any sort of freedoms advance or openness towards sexuality that had been opened up since the 60s, which, by the way, was the flip side, was was the form of discontent that demanded more sexuality. Now it's a form of discontent that sort of wants to constrain it, to perhaps prohibit it. What's kind of striking about um, this conversation of FAR that we've been having is that, on one hand, it seems like there's a kind of feminism takes on like this puritanical form, and on the other hand, it takes on this libertine form. So on one hand, it seems like you have like Dworkin saying like all sex is assault, um, and on the other hand, it seems like there's uh, libertinism encouraged. What's interesting though is like you know we're talking about how maybe it's um, Me Too is facilitating people's like people's ambivalence towards therapy or ambivalence towards getting better. Uh, but I think it's also in facilitating people's ambivalence towards sexuality in general. It's facilitating people's ability to imagine possible about their experiences with beauty, love, and compassion. It, you know, it's not, I don't think it's a necessarily new thing, though. Um, I think this goes back to maybe the 19th and early 20th century, to what Wilhelm Reich called like a you know, general lack of imagination or a fear of freedom. But I, you know, I don't know if it's something new, but it is, I think you're right to pinpoint it as relating to, um, you know, a protest against Trump. Mm -hmm. But, okay, so I have not, I also confess not have seen the movie, I've not read the book, but I, I got into this argument at the Platypus Salon about how, yeah, Fifty Shades of Grey is kind of flame because it, tur it turns what's interesting about uh, S&M and bondage culture into like, whatever like boring taboo relations la 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 and then someone at the salon was like but pam like you realize that like what's hot about this movie or this book is that the woman in in the subject the main character does not want to sign the contract she does not want to just be another one of the dom's subjects that signs the contract of consent she wants it to be something more she wants and a relationship like, oh she wants something more. Well, let's not lean it down to her. <laughs> you know, whatever that might mean, right? Like more, whatever more means. But, you know, like, okay, so the culture industry, you know, like for Adorno is something that undermines its own potential, right? But it taps into desire and yet it doesn't satisfy it. But there is that desire. I thought it was interesting that the film did um, appeal to this kind of naughty potential in people that they actually don't just want the consensual sexual relationship. <laughs> that some part of them does think that that's just kind of lame. 
Um, but, you know, I don't know. Again, I haven't seen the movie, so I can only speculate and maybe I'm given it. No, but it's definitely a product of culture that was a massive phenomenon. Um, and, yeah, there's perhaps something salvageable there. Sure. It sort of follows out of um, the Twilight series, I think, which had, like, a very similar um, kind of fun Mormon sexual fantasy going on, I guess. Um, I never I never read or saw Fifty Shades of Grey. I've stumbled upon the Twilight movies a few times, and they are a little bit of a guilty pleasure for me. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, so, like, one thing that I think is notable, at least, like, in my own social media sphere, just from my observations, um, Me Too resonated with, like, a certain, like, urban liberal population, and then, like, anyone who was, like, one step removed from that, like, I'm literally talking even, like, Chicago versus, like, 30 minutes outside of Chicago's suburbs, I did not see Me Too really being picked up by those people, and I'm sure it is by some, but... Um, you know, I think it's sort of trying to capture a mainstream sentiment, but I don't think it's quite doing that as much as it hopes to. So that's, um, my optimistic note (laughs) for me too. Yeah, I was going to say that's fairly (laughs) optimistic. Let's hope that, let's hope that socialism captures the It definitely captures upper class and upper middle class women more than... Yeah, but those people have been out of touch for a while. Remember Hillary was supposed to win. (laughs) Well, remember Bill Clinton also actually had a sexual allegation go through trial during his presidency. And the reaction to that was kind of the opposite of me too, but (laughs) that's a whole other tangent. Yeah. Or like the second debate between Hillary and Trump where... uh, Trump brought uh-huh. uh, the accusers on and into like the front row yeah. of the debate. Yeah, that was excellent. It was like hypocrisy much. Hello, <laughs> hello. <laughs> yeah. Next time in the next debate, they should show up and they should all wear pink hats. Pussy <laughs> 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 hats. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no. But okay. So we have a. This conversation is going to continue in in a public. Uh, conference that we're organizing in London. Nuncia, maybe you want to talk a little bit about the Euro Conference. That's right. So February 16th to the 18th, we have the fourth European Conference in London this year. And on Saturday, we in the afternoon, we'll be having a, a workshop discussion titled Marxism and Feminism. And speaking on that, so far, we've confirmed Laurie Penny, Judith Shapiro, and Lindsay German. So if you're interested in continuing this conversation, I'm sure Me Too will come up. And if not me too, then at least the Women's March or, um, you know. Con- hopefully socialism too. Hopefully so- <laughs> hopefully socialism and Marxism will come up. Uh, yeah. Certainly. Lori and I will be there too. So yeah, if you're in London, come to Goldsmith. Yeah, come talk come to us to about this stuff. Thank you guys. Thank you, Carrie and Nunzia. Thank you. Talk Thanks for soon. having us. Thank you. Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Welcome to the Parapis Review segment. I'm Lori Rojas, the editor-in-chief of the Parapis Review, aka the PR, the monthly publication of the Parapis Affiliate Society. So in this episode, Pam and I, your co-host, will be talking to Stefan Hein, the chapter head of Berlin Parapis, to discuss an interview with Sasha Stanisik, a member of Socialist Alternative in Germany. The interview was first published in the German PR last September, but then we published it in English for December 2017 issue number 102. Give it a read. Hope you enjoy it. 
So we're going to talk about the interview. Maybe, Stefan, you can tell us about what the interview was part of, where was it first published, and why. Yes, the interview originally appeared in the sixth issue of the German Platypus Review, which is a German language quarterly we publish since 2016 and this special issue was to be on the election in Germany. We were trying to deal with the question of what Die Linke is. Die Linke translates into English the left. They consider themselves the most left party in the in the parliament. Sascha Stanikcic is a member of Die Linke and he's part of Socialist Alternative, Sozialistische Alternative, which is an organization inside Die Linke in Germany. Uh, we should clarify that Socialist Alternative, like an uh, organization of the same name, Socialist Alternative, in the United States, otherwise called SALT, are both part of the Committee for Workers International, the trustless organization on an international level. And so they have parliamentary experience in different countries, and the, in this case, this is the one that's operating within Delinka, the left opposition they consider themselves to be the most left opposition party in Germany. Um, in Germany. And so they operate within that party. So it was part of a special issue of the German Platypus Review that included other interviews with other members of Delinka. And that's right. And who are the other figures that you interviewed? Two um, of the other um, people I interviewed were Wolfgang Gerke, known as the only communist in German parliament. So he was a member of the illegal KPD back in the 60s, then joined DKP, which was a not officially follow a non-official follow-up because the KPD was made illegal in the 50s. And um, this is West Germany, just West Germany for sure. And uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the GDR, he with several other people joined. John, sorry, joined the PDS, which was the follow-up party of the SED, Party for Democratic Socialism, PDS, while the SED was the former government party of the GDR. Did you catch all of that? Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the Party of Democratic Socialism was the party that was active between 1989 and 2007, which is the precursor, if I understand correctly, to Delinka that was so Delinka is a merger of the Party of the Democratic Socialism, the PDS, and the Electoral Alternative for Labor and Social Justice. Yeah, this is the party that was supposedly tried put together in the nineties. Yeah, that's right. They considered themselves to be a labor platform, smaller labor party. A lot of people who left the SPD out of frustration in the 90s, and this was the original party which the SAV, the German Socialist Alternative, entered into. Ah, okay. Uh -huh. So they were supporting this party even before its merger with the PDS inside the Link. Uh huh. Okay. 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 So okay. So we have what six, seven months have passed since the September German elections. Four. No. Four. Yeah. Four, four months. Four months. Basically. They have not figured out the new government system because they haven't been able to organize a coalition. The quote-unquote Jamaica coalition fell apart. What, December was it? Uh, maybe November. And now we have an attempt to merge Groco. the... Groco. That's the colloquialism, I guess, of oh, the, the current new. coalition. Yeah. To bring the SPD into the government with Angela Merkel's party. But as of... The CD, yeah of our conversation right now, that hasn't been determined. Well, it's so. determined that the the... 
they have voted yes on beginning the conversation of the coalitions with the CDU, which most liberal papers have taken as this coalition is happening. It would be very rare or very under under very strange circumstances that they would at this point now plug. And the party's just figuring out its internal premises to which it might yeah. form a coalition. So the SPD has decided that they will enter into talks for a coalition with the CDU. And what's interesting is that in the last, after the last elections, the Linke turned out to be the strongest opposition party, while right now, even though they gained some voters uh, and absolute numbers, they are the second weakest party in the whole of the parliament. Right so the that's something where the Linke changed its position too. And the third person I interviewed for the last uh, issue, for the German issue number six, was Dietmar Bach, who was the opposition leader in parliament, in German parliament. So Say his name again. Dietmar Bautsch. He um, was a former member out of the PDS wing, which moved, which uh, joined to the Linke. One of the interesting things that this will also raise, and apparently some of the arguments within the SPD of not joining the coalition is in fact because it's going to make the AFD the alternative for Deutschland, the right-wing party that has made a lot of people scared in Germany, actually the largest opposition party and give them considerable amount of money. They will amount be of the opposition party and they are now confirmed they're going to be the head of the, what is it called, the budget ministry? Yes. And so this is a significant position. Yeah, um, which is right why I wouldn't be totally certain that the SPD is going to do the merger, meaning it's still to be debated. Of course, it'll likely go through. But yeah. there's this question, well, do we want to... Uh, well, that's the, what The Economist said. Yeah, we were talking about this the other day, that The Economist right, said, well, one of the reasons why the SPD might not want to enter a coalition with CDU for like the purposes of fighting the right, right, and it's kind of like principled liberalism that they consider themselves to be part of, is that they would open the door for the IFD to be the opposition party. And so... I guess the question that I had for uh, people that are in Germany is whether or not people here consider it a crisis of German politics. Like, is that what we're experiencing right now? As a reader of The Economist, they seem to be concerned about who will take Angela Merkel's place in this now unsteady, quote, question mark, post-neoliberalism moment? Or is now everything okay? Is this a crisis? Well, I guess things are never really okay. But, sure, uh, that's true. And our given situation, at least I see, to my mind, some manifestations of a crisis. I mean, somehow crisis is interpreted as some downfall of civilization or whatever. But what it means is a, a problematic transition, a transformation. And we can see now the first beginnings of several transformations and this is something what I try to shed light on with how the Linkist position has changed. Even though they gained voters, they're much less important in parliament. And they are not considered the opposition anymore. The opposition against the bad situation, but more people in Germany consider the right-wing party an opposition, an opposition to this, to the status quo. And this is something which we wanted to talk with the Linke about in this issue. We wanted to talk about what is the history? How do you consider the history of your party? Where do you think you're standing now? What are the options? What are you considering your missions and uh, and your means to reach goals? And how do, do goals inside the party differ? That's why we interviewed different people for the issue. We also got someone from the more 
labor union oriented part of the party Wolfgang Treibus, which was uh, interviewed by our, who was interviewed by our German um, member, Frankfurt chapter member Daniel Schulz. There are very different positions also in the Seite Linke. In Seite Linke, and there is a huge conflict inside the party going on between, basically between two different wings who are different circles inside the party, personal connections, but also different answers concerning the refugee crisis in Europe and if we should consider it a crisis. So you see in Die Linke also transformations which are problematic and I think which seem to be a stalemate. And well, we, we should come back to this interview because I, in a way of making sense of Delinka through the socialist alternative, at one point you ask, I'm just going to read this bit, Delinka sees itself as the anti-neoliberal party and at the same time it is shaped by the crisis of neoliberalism. At the policy level, this crisis has brought Syriza into government and Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn into key positions of their parties. So if the socialist alternative considers Delinka to be insufficient as like their critique of capitalism and even insufficient their critique of neoliberalism, like, what do they think that they are doing by being part of Delinka? I think an important part of the answer is what Sanicic himself says inside, um, inside the interview, where he speaks about a, a dual task which they have to, to do. On the one hand, socialist alternative, SFL, is considered the core or the, the seed of a party, a political party, in the vein of Lenin and Trotsky. And on the other hand, he says that the labor movement basically needs to be rebuilt. And even though he's not totally specific on it, I think what he's saying is that this is neither simply economic nor simply political. So you can't just go into the labor unions, but you also need to be in the biggest party which claims to be the party of the workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, or can be the project for this, while the SPD was crumbling since a long time, but really in the 90s it became a transformation of what the SPD stood for. They became a center party and not a workers' party anymore. A center party. Mm -hmm. And this is the latest transformation, big transformation, I think, in German politics, which are also important for the left, which the Link tried to give an answer to. And Stanicic said that a left unity project needs to be the basis, not for a Marxist party maybe, but for building up a solid workers' movement. Yeah, and I think there, in that particular section of the interview, where he begins uh, with the transitional program as a question, and he quotes Trotsky, he says, the historical crisis of humanity is due to the crisis of revolutionary leadership, which is a very famous Trotsky quote. But of course, what he's raising in, the, in there is to basically say, but our moment is very different, which I appreciate, for one. And the other point that he sort of tries to focus on, right, is recognition, at least I would say, of a certain amount of deep weakness and, yeah, the, the need to rebuild the, a labor party in its breath, to build labor in its breath. Uh, for him, you know, really does point at least to a recognition of regression. The answer of what is to be done is then is left a little unspecified, but... That he, recognition, I think, is in the interview. He does have important. a. He has he has a proposition, right? And this is what I wanted to talk about. So he has a proposition. He he says, like you mentioned, comparing himself somewhat, right, to sort of a political imagination of Lenin. 
but then brings in Luxembourg at one point in the interview. I think it's because he brings up Luxembourg to talk about her opposition to uh, the entry into office by the French socialist Mitterrand. And he says that, I'm reading from the interview, there she stated that assuming governmental responsibility, even though even through a single ministerial post, means assuming responsibility for all government policy, and thus for the maintenance and management of capitalist grievances. Mm-hmm. So the idea then is that you don't participate in a capitalist government. You don't become like the manager of capital. I guess in some regard, the, the marginalization of Delinka, right, is what allows them to keep keep their hands clean or just to be principled. It allows them to be principled because Delinka is not really a manager of capital in the German state. Only in the federal states, Only. which was critiqued openly by the social term socialist alternative. Explain that, please. Uh, Die Linke participated, for example, in the Berlin federal government. Right. <clears throat> so Berlin's federal state in Germany. There they made cuts in the social sector and partook in neoliberal reforms, which are reshaping the city and... This is a point of argument for different groups, even for different Trotskyist groups inside the Linke. Should we critique this popular Right, I think movement? that the culture minister of Berlin is a De Linke, um member. It's from the party. Right. This is why the issue of the dictatorship of the proletariat, right, would need to come back into the conversation. And you guys asked him several times in the interview, right? Like, so what of the dictatorship of the proletariat? Why not the dictatorship of the proletariat? He doesn't really address the issue. He doesn't really address the issue. You know, he he basically says we have to call it something else now. Uh, I think he differentiates himself from the democratic socialist by calling himself aligned with the tendency Mm -hmm. called socialist democracy, right? And then at the towards the end, he says, or perhaps not towards the end, but at some point in the interview, he says, well, we would be for councils. We will be for workers' councils bringing up uh, Russia. And yet, I mean, isn't that problem of being the, the, the manager of capital in the state, like precisely what the dictatorship of the proletariat was meant to bring to a head, right? A confrontation with the managers of capital within the state. But that's in a revolutionary process. Yes, but you would then say, well, what is the point of being in government? Then what's the point of participating in parliamentary politics? Or school of politics. I guess at a certain point here in this discussion about the dictatorship of the proletariat, even Sanicic says we're sticking to Marxist dictum of the dictatorship of the proletariat. He says we would need a new name for it. And then he tries to clarify what it means and brings up, for example, the Soviets, which avoids several questions. It, for example, avoids the question of what does the party have to do then? And also a workers managed state would be necessary for the dictatorship of the proletariat, but it would not be sufficient because the state also needed to vanish away. It needs to be abolished after revolution. And there he, for example, speaks about the end of the class rule of the bourgeoisie. But for me, an important part of the dictatorship of the proletariat is 
the condition of Bonapartism, that the state is over society, several questions of the connection between the party and the socialist state are left open here. And those are exactly the important questions of what are the problems with the Soviet Union. In response to your question about the dictatorship of the proletariat, he says, Today we would no longer use the term dictatorship of the proletariat, but Marx is correct when he states that before one can come to a classless society, one must first, in the course of a socialist transformation, overturn the prevailing property and, and power relations. We would use other terms today. Today, we would talk, for example, about workers' democracy, that is, about the need for the working class to achieve a state and a society in which it can exercise democratic control and administration. Of course, such a circumstance would not yet be a classless society, as it is intended by socialism, as socialists as a goal. The classless society cannot be introduced by fiat, but would be the product of a continuing historical development. And then he mentions the early days of the Russian Revolution, and he ends with again reminding us, of course, the ballast of capitalist society cannot be left behind overnight. But I, Laurie said in passing just briefly, the school of politics, Right. Okay. So if the bourgeois politics of today are the school of politics for socialists, right, which I think you're right to sort of say. Oh, it's not me. It's Luxembourg and Second International. But Right. To remind us that the school of politics for the socialists are dealing with the bourgeoisie, right, and facing the bourgeoisie. But we have to remember that Luxembourg's formulation is face-to-face, chin-to-chin, right? That, that the idea is that you clearly confront the capitalists and that you learn something about the confrontation, that you learn the necessity for the dictatorship of the proletariat and for socialism out of the confrontation with the capitalists. I'm, I'm not even raising a critique of this organization, but I think that the fact that this is this kind of muddiness to the answer makes me wonder about their strategy. If, if that is what's happening, if those are the lessons that they're learning within their work through Delinka, I would just say this stuff is extremely muddy and like on the other side it's like it's actually rare when we have an organization that can put their practice in contemporary bourgeois politics in whatever form it takes mm-hmm. and articulate that relationship to the dictatorship of the proletariat which of course he kind of sidesteps to talk about revolution and leaves it more vague nonetheless right I actually think that that is not very often that you can engage a leftist on these terms today mm-hmm. and I don't think that like yeah, many quote-unquote socialist parties that are out there would work through that process with you. Yeah. Our expectations today are perhaps low uh, for good reason, but the idea that somebody that engages in politics today would say, I understand what the dictatorship of the proletariat means and I have something to say about it, makes us feel like we're having a conversation, which you know I take to be I, I that's not be being facetious. I that's that's of course the correct point to take. But well, I guess we have to wrap our conversation up, and we'll look forward to what happens here in Germany, and hopefully speak to our German members again soon. Hello, welcome back. We're going to talk to Chris Catrone, the president of the Platypus Affiliated Society, on the first year of Trump. So the Trump presidency has just turned one year old. And we'll take stock with Chris. We're also promoting the book 
Marxism in the Age of Trump, which takes its name after a platypus panel that we did for our international convention last year. Published pieces include Chris's articles as well as commentary by Boris Kargolitsky, Catherine Liu, Greg Lucero, John Milios, Leonie Ettinger, who's a member of Platypus, as well as others. So that should be out and ready, published by Platypus Publishing. It's available on Amazon. Hi, Chris. Hello. So we started talking about the ways that the left has been complaining that really nothing has changed with this year of Trump, that there was an expectation that the American political establishment was going to be overturned or that a shift was going to be palpable in American politics and that that hasn't really been the case. I guess I would say that um, the left might be disappointed that not much has changed. Um, You know, they might be also relieved that not much has changed, but they might be uh, confused about whether they're disappointed or relieved. If you recall, people were expecting fascism, um, expecting concentration camps, and uh, you know, to which my response would be, well, there won't be any concentration camps, or there already are concentration camps. What are you talking about? Meaning there are, you know, detention centers, deportations of immigrants going on, you know, for the last eight years under Obama. So the concentration camps are already open, uh, or they're never going to happen, depending Mm -hmm. on how you look at it. The same goes for the wall. Exactly. There's already a wall. Um, There's going to be a wall, or there's not going to be a wall, right? So... It's it. This is the world that we live in now. Uh, you know, the world of fake news, uh, where uh, everything is just spin, mm-hmm. right? And so the left is unfortunately caught up in that. Uh, you know, the left, the degree to which we're talking about the left as separate from the Democratic Party, yeah, to any to any extent whatsoever. Yeah, which is kind of hard to say now to what degree the left is separate from the Democratic Party. It is, but I think that there are still some people out there who are soft on Trump. Um, Meaning there are people who are, you know, getting on the bandwagon of anti-Trumpism for sure, but are not quite as strident. So I think one would have to distinguish between Democrats, liberals, radical liberals, and the more hardcore left. I think that the the anti-imperialist left, for example, has been generally soft on Trump, whether that's Chomsky, Zizek, uh, the ISO. You know, they'll denounce Trump, but they're not going to be hysteric the way others are. And that's because they actually are not sure of what to expect, and they, they would have seen Hillary as more of a threat of, you know, U.S. interventionism, etc. So when your article, Why Not Trump, came out, you were characterizing Trump as being post-neoliberal, not Mm anti-neoliberal. Would you maybe tell us how we can assess this within the one-year anniversary of his presidency? Is that visible now? Right. So again, looking at like the mainstream commentary, either nothing has changed, or actually a great deal has changed. So there has been, you know, mainstream political commentary on how Trump is changing things, uh, changing the Republican Party, uh, changing rhetoric, 
Um, also changing, you know, packing the courts with conservative appointees. Um, and in fact, uh, that the changes are, despite all of the uh, furor around what he says, um, that the changes are going kind of unnoticed. Uh, you know, his tearing up of a lot of government regulation mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, loosening up uh, for uh, businesses to be able to carry on more un unimpeded by government regulation, that actually a lot is changing. It's just below the surface, and it's not quite the same thing as uh, all the public controversies that the Trump administration gets mired in. So what would you say are some of the more meaningful changes? I think that the Republican Party is where you have to look at what's changing, meaning you have a bunch of senators and congresspeople who are retiring. I guess the big example is Jeff Flake protesting against Trump, basically saying, look, you know, we don't want to work with this guy, so we're going to step off. And uh, a lot of the controversies with respect to passing legislation, whether it was repealing Obamacare or now um, with the immigration discussion, you see some Republicans are happy with what Trump is doing with respect to taxes, but there are actually others who are not happy with what he's doing with respect to the other policies. Um, both those who think he's too right-wing and those who think he's not right-wing enough. So you do have this playing out. So, you know, is, is Trump a friend, an ally of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, or is he an adversary? Um, we know from the art of the deal that, that Trump, mm -hmm. one of his tactics is to uh, play up to adversaries, to flatter them. That's one tactic that you're supposed to use. Um, and you're supposed to sort of wear your weakness on your sleeve so that your adversaries don't think you're much of a threat. So you're supposed to uh, compliment and flatter your adversaries and also appear weaker than you really are. Um, but that's one of the tactics that he uses in negotiation. Uh, so, you know, recall that Ted Cruz was very hostile to Trump, but then Ted Cruz was out stumping for Trump on the tax break. And you could see that was part of the electoral strategy as well, of course. Uh, at least in the aspect of, and still people underestimating him and assuming and just treating him as dumb, <laughs> um, which went very easily mm -hmm. in surprising people at the election day. So the changes are, you know, perhaps subtle, but also perhaps long term, meaning what we're looking at, you know, he does have this agenda, despite the fact that Bannon is out. And now there's conflict between Trump and Bannon because Bannon is annoyed with Trump. Um, nonetheless, the agenda of changing the Republican Party, it may not have been along the lines that Bannon was articulating it, but this was Trump's perspective all along, long before Bannon got involved. If, uh, Bannon was actually a Ted Cruz supporter before he uh, joined the Trump campaign. So it was only after Cruz was out that Bannon came into the Trump team because before that he was supporting Cruz. Right. I mean, you know, I would just say that <clears throat> looked at at a political level, you know, meaning mainstream politics, and at an ideological level, which uh, is not quite the same thing, but it's obviously related to rhetoric. Um, the kind of rhetoric that people are, are shocked that he's tearing up uh, political correctness. And uh, 
you know, these are related phenomena, but again, he might be tearing up political correctness not to, you know, transform the ideological landscape according to the alt-right, um, but rather just to create some, some space for change. Um, <clears throat> looking at it at that level, of course, that's very indirect, and uh, it's also very unclear where it goes. Right, so that's why people just throw all these labels at him, like, is he a nationalist, is he a white nationalist, all of these ideas, they don't really stick, they don't really apply, and that's where the issue of post-neoliberalism versus anti-neoliberalism is so important, because if we expect him to be the negation of neoliberalism, we're going to be confused or disappointed, or there's going to be an anticlimax. Um, I like to say, and I wrote in uh, my articles on Trump, that he's accused of wanting to, you know, return the United States to the 1950s, but he actually wants to return the United States to the 1990s. The degree to which he has a backward look, he really wants a return to the period of U.S. hegemony on a global stage, and prosperity, right? A capitalist boom. Um, and of course, in the 90s, uh, this is where he was playing with the Reform Party or he was supportive of Democrats, right? That was, and he was eventually kicked out of the Reform Party, the um, Ross Perot Party, uh, because uh, they moved to the right and he didn't want to be in a right-wing party, so he and Jesse Ventura left the Reform Party when it became more right-wing. You know, so again, he's always had this centrist idea. Uh, his, his notion of the, re of the Reform Party was that the Democrats were too far left and the Republicans were too far right. And that's his essential position. So this then brings up the question of misrecognition on the left of what Trump is, mm -hmm. versus what one can understand him as being. And you brought up the long-term changes that might come about and that we have to um, maybe take a careful look at the transformation of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll use this as a segue. There was a article in Counterpunch by Boris Kargolitsky, who's also in the collection of uh, Marxism in the Age of Trump, uh, an article titled Trump and the Contradictions of Capitalism, in which, you know, he's expressing this kind of nothing's happened, nothing's changed, and when it comes to the Republican Party, the Republican Party coup did not take place, and he says, quote, there will be no return to the times of Abraham Lincoln. And I think what's implied, um, and he says it somewhat explicitly earlier, is that the rhetoric of the working class, right, that's supposed to be recaptured by the Republican Party, um, it's not really reaping any fruit. It's not really changing the party significantly. And so Kargolitsi has this assessment that this kind of tacit alliance between the working class and the American capitalist is not not really adding up to much of an opportunity and in part he argues because the left itself can't sort of understand this contradiction mm. and what what it might mean for us to talk about Trump as having won the presidency um, on on the backs of a working class vote has become an issue of much controversy so m maybe we could discuss this and whether or not this idea that the Republican Party was going to become again the party of labor carries any water, 
or how we understand, you know, the supposed working class revolt against the Democrats. Right. So a couple of things. So Bannon, of course, symbolized this in certain respects. His house in Washington, D.C. is uh, decorated in period, you know, circa 1865 uh, style. So you walk into Bannon's house and you, it's like you're walking back into 1865 and it has all this Lincoln memorabilia, etc. And people think that, you know, Bannon represents this, you know, white nationalist, working class, populist base. Um, you know, Bannon comes from the Tea Party milieu. And uh, it, it raises the question, so, so Boris Kogorlitsky, um, the articles that I included in the book don't include uh, the latest article that's in Counterpunch. Rather, it's his articles, Who's Afraid of Donald Trump? and Paralysis of Will, Bernie Sanders' Capitulation, uh, that we published uh, before the election. We published in the summer of 2016. And there, uh, had argued that Trump represented a split among the capitalists between the industrial capitalists and the financial capitalists. I was always dubious of this idea. Uh, first of all, that you could actually separate out the industrial capitalists from the financial capitalists. A, and B, that, that Trump represented that split. Now, what this raises, however, uh, again, keeping Bannon's political trajectory in mind as a Tea Partier and then as a Cruz supporter, and Cruz was widely seen as the Tea Party candidate uh, in the Republican uh, primaries, uh, is uh, people ask, was it the working class that put Trump in the White House? It's a re repetition of the question that was asked about right. the Tea Party. Is the Tea Party a working class phenomenon or not? So what's raised usually on the left is a dis they dispute the working class character. They say, no, it's not the working class, it's the middle class. So the Tea Party is a middle class revolt against the bailout against Wall Street. And Trump represents a middle class revolt against uh, the political elites. Uh, the political status quo. And that difference between seeing it as working class and seeing it as middle class, to say that the middle class is the core of the Tea Party revolt or of the Trump insurgency is to help to characterize it as right wing, as conservative. Uh, whereas if you say that it's working class, then uh, that seems to pose uh, some question at least, if not introduce a kind of confusion about the relationship between the left and the working class. Because to say it's working class is to give it a kind of left character in some way. And this just has to do with the way that the left has a kind of vulgar pseudo-Marxism, um, a kind of economic determinism where they think that the, the working class is uh, objectively progressive or socialistic or something, or embodies some kind of principle of collectivism Whereas, of course, the middle class is individualistic and, uh, you know, right wing uh, is uh, reactionary uh, conservative. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that that really holds up, that uh, sharp distinction between the working class and the middle class. It seems to be a, a moral category rather than um, even a sociological or socioeconomic category, it certainly has nothing to do with the way Marxists historically talked about class. Right? It became, it, it, what it's become now is a kind of 
if you have money then you're more morally suspect and the poorer you are the purer you are in some way the more excluded you are from the capitalist system and therefore the more reliable you are right um, but of course we know that that's complicated by uh, race and gender and sexuality so if you're like a dirt poor white person um, you could still be a, a fascist by uh, by virtue of, of being white. The rationale follows the more oppressed you are, the more radical you are. That's right. And so, you know, generally speaking, you know, Boris Kogorlitsky, his perspective, he's suspicious of the left's hostility to the working class because there is a, a hostility to the working class. And where does that come from? It comes from the fact that the left is middle class. Mm-hmm. Huh. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that, that he said to me at our European conference last year in February of 2017... In Vienna, yes. ...is, he said, the left is just neoliberal. Meaning, you know, the left-left, not just the Democrats. The left is neoliberal. And what he meant by that was it's middle class. Like, this is the way he understands the relationship between sociology, socioeconomics, and ideology. Um, that, of course, the left pretends to be socialistic, working class, but they're not. They're really middle class and neoliberal. Hmm. Uh, there's some truth to that, I suppose. You know, you get uh, variations of that argument um, in, in any version of the critique of the professional managerial class, whether by Catherine Liu or Adolf Reed, um, you know, there are a bunch of people, uh, intellectuals, theorists, uh, who will say, look, the left is essentially neoliberal in this way, that they represent the professional managerial class and people who stake their claim to speak on behalf of black people or women or gay people by virtue of being uh, essentially one version or another of corporate managers of these populations. And that includes academia, of course, because uh, academia is not really separate from the corporate world. Uh, so you have sort of professional managerial class people in training in academia Right, who then join that class in the in the corporate world when they graduate, uh, and then some of them stay behind to keep educating those people uh, in in the university so that they're ready for corporate America. So you know when we talk about the shock to the system, that's the system that we're talking about: the system for training the professional managerial class. Um, at least this would be the argument that a Boris Kogorlitsky would make or an Adolf Reed or a Catherine Liu. This is how they, they see things. And they basically speak as dissident academics. In other words, they're looking at their immediate milieu of academics and, and other kinds of intellectuals. And you know, they, they say, okay, well, who are these people? What is their ideology? Whose interests do they serve? So so who they are are middle-class professionals, their ideology is identity politics, and whose interests they serve is neoliberal capitalism. So, I am There's some truth to that. Yes. Yeah. So we have to wrap up, but I wanted to ask, mm -hmm. so what do you think it would mean today for, you know, a member of the middle class, as uh, academics are, to support the struggle for socialism? Well, uh, that's where we have to use our intellectualism as intellectualism. In other words, rather than just trying to refurbish the ideology, uh, we should rather be using our intellectual faculties critically. 
right? So the critique of ideology, in other words, not just keeping up to date with our ideology, not just innovating our ideology to keep pace with social reality as it changes under capitalism, um, but rather to critique those changes and to critique it in, in the way that Marxism always has with historical consciousness. In other words, with a long view of the changes and the relationship between continuity and change. You know, I think that the big fear, certainly where I teach, the big fear was, oh, somehow Trump's election means there's not going to be a market for the ideas that we peddle anymore. In other words, that somehow corporate America will go along with Trump. Mm, and mm -hmm. then uh, what, we, what we teach the kids, in other words, we teach them politesse, a kind of, you know, how to, how to exist in corporate America, how to say the right things, how not to offend people, how to make a safe, you know, welcoming work environment for people that somehow corporate America is going to dispense with that and we're going to have to retool our educational efforts in a way that we're not prepared to do. So it was like a threat to their market uh, because, you know, what academia has done in the last 40 years is, is come up to speed with corporate America. But I think that in uh, Who's Afraid of Donald Trump, Boris Kogorlitsky talks about how the intellectuals on the left uh, might you know, play with these utopian ideas, but but ultimately they accommodate the system as it is. Uh, and so, obviously, the role of intellectuals is to uh, to not stop thinking. And unfortunately, you know, a year into Trump, the drums are still beating, the hysteria is still flying, and the mm. last thing that we're supposed to do is think. We're supposed to just emotionally react to the vulgarisms of this guy and how he shocks our sensibility every day and we just can't believe it and you know what country do we live in I think that that's still the world that we live our in. Our job is to make people feel safe yes in their in their emotions as opposed exactly. to changing the world right we're supposed to affirm people in their emotional response yes thank you Chris alright buy the book Marxism in the Age of Trump and Platypus Review is uh, open, rolling submissions, so feel free to send responses to the editor of the Platypus Review. Senior editor is Lori Rojas here with us. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Thanks.